neoliberalism has created an enormous amount of value for a very small group of almost exclusively white men. We need to first acknowledge that there are people in the room that we have not been acknowledging. What leads to this sort of huge economic gap between men and women is the undervaluation of care work in the world. And that goes back to sort of the foundation of, of modern day economics. And we have to talk about that. From the offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer. A pointed conversation about who gets what and why with one of America's most provocative capitalists. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm Stephanie Irvin. I run a lot of our advocacy and campaign work here at Civic Ventures. In this episode uh, that we're calling Economic Woman, uh, we're exploring the relationship both between the theoretical parts of economics to women and how they participate, and also how the profession, you know, kind of on the ground treats women or intersects right. with women. And, and these in, things are linked. They are linked. And in, in this really interesting, recursive, sort of fractal way. And um, honestly, until we started doing this episode, I hadn't thought about it really, really deeply. But it is super interesting when you consider the fact that the idea of women and f- sort of sort of the the characteristics that we attribute to femininity femininity excuse me mm-hmm. is excluded from how we view human behavior in neoclassical economics and neoliberalism and the models too that assume that people are perfectly rational and all this stuff um, exclude caring intimacy loyalty, love, yeah. reciprocity, basically community, community all that stuff, yeah. right? And um, the fact that the profession itself has been massively dominated by mostly rich white guys who have been, you know, it turns out incredibly hostile to women. Yeah. And then you have this sort of on the ground lived experience where women are per- paid whatever it is 71 cents on the dollar of men is that i think it's more now, now like okay but 81 yeah but cents. and uh, the amount of wealth held by women is de minimis compared to men and where there is wealth it is often a consequence of um inheritance inheritance or, or being a dependent of, of a man or being widowed or whatever yeah. it is right and how all of these things are interrelated that if femininity is excluded from how we think about economics and women are excluded from the profession of economics, it should not surprise us, I suppose, that Mm -hmm. (laughs) women are screwed by the economic system. And I hate to sound clinical about it, but it is kind of (laughs) interesting Yeah, and bad. And Nick, who cooks your dinner? Actually, mostly I cook my dinner. Is that right? (laughs) Yeah. I didn't know that. Mostly. Um, Actually, my wife, Leslie, and I uh, trade off, but I think I can say uh, that I cook as many dinners as she does, and eh, maybe a few more. Yeah, but why did you ask me who cooked my dinner? Well, because as our next guest lays out, the sort of foundational question of economics as put forward by Adam Smith is, where did your dinner come from? He never really reflected on where his dinner came from, did he? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it'll be super fun to talk to journalist and writer Katrine Marsal. Um, who wrote this super interesting book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner. Yeah. My name is Katrine Marsal. I'm a journalist and author, and I'm the author of Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which is a book on women and economics, and it has been translated into 20 languages. I um, live in England, and... um, work from there as a journalist, but I'm originally from Sweden. In your book, you argue that economics needs feminism. So lay out your argument. <laughs> yes. So I go back to the founding question of economics, or at least the founding question of economics, if you asked Adam Smith, the founding father of economics. And he says that the founding question of economics is how do you get 
your dinner, which is a, a very good economic question because we, we take it for granted that we can go into a store and there will be things to buy there and everything will work. But actually for there to be goods to buy and a store that's open, lots of you know coordinated economic processes need to take place. And Adam Smith was interested in why does it all work? Sort of what's the fundamental force in the economy that makes it all function somehow? So how do you get your dinner? And his answer to this founding question of economics was that the very famous sentence, it's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that you get your dinner. It's from them serving their own self-interest. So the answer to the question, how do you get your dinner is self-interest. Self-interest is the sort of fundamental force in the economy, according to Adam Smith in The Wealth of Nations. And this then becomes a very, very important important idea in economics, and economics has even been called the science of self-interest. And to think like an economist is to sort of look at a situation and analyse it, you know, based on the idea that people are in it sort of acting out of self-interest. This is sort of the idea that, you know, people take from Adam Smith, and this is what becomes in many ways economics. Uh, But I just, uh, you know, look at um, Adam Smith's life okay, if the fundamental question of, uh, of economics is how do, you, how do you get your dinner, um, how did Adam Smith himself get his dinner? His mom, and, it turns out. <laughs> it turns out it was his mother, exactly. Um, exactly. He lived with his mother for most parts of his life, and she was a widow in Scotland and um, in those days, 1700s, and she looked after the household for him, and they had servants, but it was sort of her job to make sure that everything worked. And she is the part to the, you know, to the answer to the question, how do you get your dinner, that he forgot. Because <laughs> can you say that she did what she did out of self-interest? Um, maybe, partly. Um, but um, there were not huge sort of other economic um, opportunities for widows in Scotland in those days. But it's fair to assume, I mean, I write in the book that probably she did what she did because, you know, she cared for him. She loved him. She was worried about him. You know, all these sort of other reasons why people do what they do that's not self-interest and that also matter in the economy and that economists have not been very good at studying or that um, and and which has led economics to forget about women. And that's a big problem. Yeah, I think it's really worth underscoring that when we talk about economics, the rational actor is always a man. Yes. Yeah, it's homo economicus. And that all of the models and the narratives generated from those models proceed from that fundamental assumption. And therefore, to a certain extent, the only thing that matters is what matters to them, which I I think you would agree has had some pretty profound consequences for the world and I suppose for women. Yes, absolutely. I mean, so, I mean, there's, a lot of people that will, and a lot of books that will tell you that homo economicus, you know, rational economic man is not real, that this sort of right. model of human behavior that we rely on in sort of standard economic theory is fiction. So, but what I say is that, you know, this is, yes, this is fiction, but this is also a fictional model of human behavior, which with sort of its fundamental characteristic is that it's not a woman, it's a man. And that matters. I mean, everything we assume that human beings are in economics, you know, rational, self-interested, you know, these individualistic sort of atoms, you know, perfectly powerful coming into every situation, knowing exactly, you know, what we want and how we want it. And all of these characteristics are the same characteristics that we have been taught for hundreds of years to view as male. And everything that sort of economics goes to great extent trying to exclude from its world, you know, like context, family, the body, relationships, altruism, 
are things that we have been taught to view as female. And that cannot, I mean, that's what I argue in the book, cannot be a coincidence. And it somehow must have something to do with the fact that women are earning less than men, that women in this world are uh, having lots of, facing lots of economic problems that men are not facing. And the fact that this, the system is rigged in the way that it is. Can you talk about that more specifically, like yes. the consequences in terms of wage suppression or the lack of value for care work, for example? So what this leads to, you know, Adam Smith forgets about his mother and forgets about the contributions that she does, you know, her part in how he gets his dinner. And this leads to economics forgetting about women's work in general, in many ways. I mean, actually, you have to say that Adam Smith is slightly more, sort of his theories are slightly more complex than this. But yeah. but what, what people sort of take out from Adam Smith and sort of move on with uh, through the history of economics is sort of this idea of self-interest and rational economic man um, is not sort of exactly his all he thought. But uh, But anyway, this leads to economics forgetting about the work that women do because it leads to us studying just the things that human beings do out of self-interest on the market as economic activity and define the work that is done, you know, the care work, the work that's done within the home and not, you know, for self-interest in sort of in in that way as, you know, non not important to the economy. This is not work. This is not anything that contributes to economic growth. And we still have that, you know, for example, you know, when we look at growth or, you know, the GDP measurement, which is tremendously important, obviously, uh, for how we judge a country or an economy, work that is done within the home and lots of, you know, care work, therefore, um, is is not visible. It's not counted as work. And this leads to, you know, this thing that sort of feminist economists have been pointing out for decades, you know, the bizarre situation where, for example, in a developing country, if you, ha you have, you know, a, a young woman who walks 11 kilometers every morning to get firewood and walks back with this to the village and works most of the day sort of around the home, what she does is completely invisible in economic statistic. It is something that is not sort of deemed as something that contributes to the economy or to growth in this country. This gives us, you know, a very sort of false picture of what the economy is and and how development works. And it also completely ignores women. And to connect this more to sort of inequality between men and women. So the main reason why women today in this world, you know, have less money than men is that women do more care work than men, whether that is unpaid care work in the home or paid care work, which is often very underpaid in almost every economy in the world. And it's something that we do not value. We have no sort of tradition of valuing this work economically because we assume that it is something that we don't have to study. It is something that will just automatically happen. Uh, Adam Smith's mother will always <laughs> prepare the dinner. Um, it is like some, some kind of natural resource that will always be there. And it doesn't matter. We can take this for granted. And um, what leads to this sort of huge economic gap between, gap between, between men and women is the undervaluation of, of care work in the world. And that goes all the way back to sort of the foundation of, of modern day economics. Yeah, I mean, one of the turns of phrase you had in the book somewhere was that women didn't so much enter the workforce as change jobs. Yeah, <laughs> right. exactly, exactly. It's interesting. I think one of the other consequences that you raise is, I think you literally say, we redefined people to fit our idea of the economy. Yeah. That if we decided the economy was built on, the perfect economy was built on selfishness and and competition, that people should then start behaving that way. And ultimately, I, I feel what I reflect sort of on the early feminism as it 
entered my life was really about how to fit even that mold. Not that women could participate in whatever way they show up as, but as mirrors, at best as mirrors of how we think men operate or should operate in a perfect world. Yes, exactly. And and that's what's, you know, so backwards and so strange really that, you know, it's a we have like this fictional idea of you know, how people should be in, in an economy. And then we just try to sort of fit, as you say, fit into that mold instead of, you know, just acknowledging sort of the full extent of our humanity, which includes these, you know, traits that we have been taught to view as female and therefore to look down upon things that are not self-interest, um, dependency, the body, family, our ties to each other, these things. Acknowledge that those are part of you know of being human as well and trying to create a society and an economy that can support us you know in our sort of the, the full extent of of our humanity and that you know as i view it it should be the um ought to be the the feminist project really what's remarkable to me is that just how out of step the conception of homo economicus is mm. with how the world actually operates because if you reflect on you know go outside the home where it's more obvious that care work uh, isn't based on naked self-interest but even into you know a highly competitive capitalist enterprise 99% of what occurs every day is reciprocity and cooperation hmm. The act of building a product like an iPhone is a symphony of almost surreal amounts of cooperation, both within companies and companies cooperating with other companies through global supply chains, right? And at the very end of that process, there's a little bit of competition <laughs> to, to decide who's, whose phone gets sold better. You know, but the truth is that if you if you examine what happens in the world on a minute to minute basis, if you just go outside and watch what's happening, people are not competing to get down the street. <laughs> they are cooperating to make traffic go, right? Like yes. you know, the world is a symphony of reciprocity and cooperation, and the deepest human instinct actually think that Adam Smith was right. There is an invisible hand, but the invisible hand is reciprocity, not self-interest. <laughs> no, I completely agree. And this was what fascinated me so much when I was working on this book is sort of why, you know, and we've known for you know decades that this sort of model, you know, rational economic man, as you're saying, it's not true. This is not how the world works. And, you know, the amount of, you know, experiments that have been done, you know, proving that this is not how people act. We are not just driven by self-interest and we are not rational in this way. And the only people that maybe sort of behave a bit like this are children under five. And, you know, study after study after study. And why are we still so invested in this model? Why do we want the world to be like this? You know, why is this so seductive? And for me, the answer that sort of, you know, that I was thinking a lot about, you know, to this this question is that it is seductive in the same way that, you know, like a very certain type of masculinity, like, you know, the lonely cowboy or whatever can be seductive. If the world was like this, if we were all these sort of rational, self-interested people that you could just sort of look at and then calculate, you know, these sort of rather beautiful equations explaining everything that happens in the economy, then the world would be, you know, it would be controllable. It would be easy to understand. It would be safe in many sense. We would, we would sort of not have to deal with these things that are messy in life because all the things that we try to exclude from economic theory you know, family relationships, other people, the body, gender, these things are, they, you know, they do make life 
<laughs> messy, but also they're sort of what makes us human and what makes everything meaningful. But without them, you get this sort of perfect rational world, which I think is comforting to us in some sense. And I think that's why this type of economics has been so, I mean, incredibly seductive and so incredibly powerful and almost, you know, become like this underlying religion in society. And I think it's a lot about sort of acknowledging why we are actually attracted to these models. I agree with that, but with this addendum, mm -hmm. that one of the reasons that this model of human behavior so infects our culture is that it is massively beneficial to people with power and wealth and status. <laughs> mm. Because if it is true that humans are perfectly selfish and we look around the world at all the prosperity in it, then it has to be the case that selfishness is the cause of prosperity and therefore the more selfish we are, the more prosperous we become. And that arrangement very much benefits people who are super comfortable being rapacious and selfish and excuses both politically, socially, and culturally the worst kind of behavior. Because if you can persuade people that the bigger a selfish shithead I am, the better it will be for you, well, if you're a really selfish shithead, you have a lot of latitude to do some pretty terrible things that may benefit you but bring harm to other people. Hmm. And I think it's it's hard to understate how important that is to folks, for instance, in my world, who desperately want to believe that selfishness is the cause of prosperity, that the more selfish they are, the more prosperity they create for everybody. Therefore, anything they do, no matter how horrific or objectionable, is morally righteous. You know, as you're saying, it becomes, you know, it's a very effective way of defending the status quo, you know, because according to this theory, if some, if everything, if human beings are always rational and the market is an expression of, of these rational forces, if something exists on the market, say inequality between men and women, then the only job of an economist is to sort of think about why is it rational that men earn more money than women? And then you sort of figure out the reason for that. And, you know, you express that in an equation and, you know, you win the Nobel Prize in economics, yeah. basically. Um, so, so it's it's a very effective way of defending the status quo. Uh, I do, however, also think that that's a big part. But I personally also have been very interested in kind of examining the not just like the neoliberal conspiracy out there. <laughs> Which, which probably, you know, exists, <laughs> maybe, yeah, uh, sure. I don't know. But I'm interested in ne the neoliberalism in within me, you know, why, even, you know, as, you know, why are we so, you know, almost like psychologically, religiously attracted to these things? And you know, why does it hold such power over us? And, uh, and I do think sort of the masculinity of these models, you know, because also we have been taught that anything that is male, that should dominate us, right? We should let that dominate us. That is sort of more valuable, that is higher. And we sort of categorize economics and economic theory as sort of this very male theory. And I think that gives it this authority, even in sort of the debate and in the discussions that I do think play a part. Do you think a lack of a better explanation or a better story is also contributing to our inability to just trash this one? <laughs> Yes, yes, I do. I do. Um, but I don't know what this story would be. I mean, people keep asking me, you know, um, I mean, I've been very lucky with this book. It's been out in, in so many languages and so many cultures. And people keep asking me sort of in one way or the other, you know, what's what's the alternative to economic man? You know, who, who's economic woman? And um, and I don't really have a good answer. I tend to think about it as that the trouble is that we cannot, you know, just you know, get rid of economic man and put somebody else in his place because the solution actually is to just let economics be much, much messier and to be this sort of messy social science that we disagree on. 
for what it's worth, I do think sort of the wit and somewhat ridicule you apply in your analysis is very useful to sort of calling out what's happening and forcing people to confront it. And I think the main thing I mean, that, that I always wanted was was just to contribute to was, you know, a process where we don't leave economics to the economists because it's far too important to that for that. I mean, we need all sorts of, of people to be comfortable uh, being in this discussion and in these debates. And I mean, especially when I was writing the book, I, I felt it was there was a situation where people were very sort of, you know, just as soon as somebody started speaking economics, like using the jargon, uh, lots of people just backed off and felt that, you know, the discussion wasn't for them. And you know, I wanted to contribute in the way I could to changing that. And especially, I mean, I must say for sort of making more women interested in these things and, you know, willing to to contribute uh, to this discussion. So we ask every one of our guests at the end of our interviews, why do you do this work? God, that's a good question. I should have prepared that. Um, why do this work? I, I, I just, I, I, I don't know. I can't stop. I just, I just find it so, so fascinating. Really, I mean, it's, it's a self, maybe selfish. I, I, I want to know. I want to understand these things. Um, I want to understand why you know the world is the way it is, and, and I think especially with with these economic theories. I think I do write this in, in the book in Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner that, you know, if if you're sort of happy with the world and the way it is and you think that, you know, you look around and you see the inequality and you see the poverty and you think, well, this is actually, this is rather good, then you can kind of afford to sort of invest in this sort of model of, of economics, of rational uh, choice and self-interest that doesn't have much to do with reality and with, you know, how, how human beings really work. But if you do actually want to change things, if you do think something else is possible and should be possible, then then you need to try to understand how the economy really works. And I think that's what, what drives me. I, I want to know, I want to understand, and I, I want to do my, my bit there. And I love writing. I do. I do love to write. That's a great answer. Well, Katrine, thank you so much for spending uh, this time with us. It was a really interesting conversation. And, thank you. Uh, best of luck on your new book. It sounds yeah, fantastic. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Talk soon. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Bye. We're also going to talk to uh, Dr. Lisa Cook and Anna Gifty Paku Adjaman uh, about their experiences in the economics profession. My name is Lisa D. Cook. I am an associate professor of economics and international relations at Michigan State University. I do research on invention and innovation on financial crises and on lynchings. My name is Anna Gifty apoku Ajman. I am currently a research scholar in economics at Harvard University, and I'm currently working with Dr. Peter Q. Blair, who is a professor at the School of Education at Harvard. I'm also a visiting research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and a pre-doctoral trainee at the inaugural NYU Schmidt Futures Computational Traineeship Program. Well, so I wanna get to sort of why you, Lisa and Anna, both wrote this important op-ed together, literally titled, It Was a Mistake for Me to Choose This Field About Economics, especially reflecting on sort of how you got into it. But I think importantly for our audience, we talk mostly in terms of power and where it comes from. Yeah, our podcast, Pitchfork Economics, is largely devoted to exposing what we think is the truth about economics, that it isn't a science like physics. It's mostly how human beings rationalize who gets what and why. It's how we instantiate our social and moral preferences about status, privileges, and power. And your field, economics, has largely been, over the last 40 years, a protection racket for rich white guys. And so it certainly was not surprising to find that women of color ran into trouble in a field dominated by rich white guys, making other rich white guys richer, which apparently has been your experience. You know, it's funny that you should mention this because I was giving a talk at Cornell the other day to graduate students, and I was giving them advice about how to 
make it in this world of academic economics. And I told them mainly about the mistakes that I made, the, the things that my uh, 20-year-old self would have wanted to know. And the first one was this. My dad, who was an administrator of a very large uh, hospital, a very good manager by many accounts, uh, one lesson that he always tried to impart was to find a person, whatever job you're in, find a reference point and measure yourself and, and make sure that that reference point is an ambitious person, a person who's trying to um, make his or her way up the ladder and set yourself the same path and the same path as that person. So as you just said, the reference point in any economics class is going to be a PhD class is going to be a, a white man. So I just started doing, you know, what the, I, I picked an ambitious white guy and I benchmarked myself to everything he was doing. And that turned out to be a disaster. I had no idea what I was getting into. And, you know, they, the graduate students sort of chuckled at that, but, you know, I took that advice so seriously. And in every setting I showed up in, you know, I was like, okay, is there a, a, the medium person, can I set myself to the medium person in my cohort and uh, do what that person is doing. And I tried very hard to, and this was a standard advice we were given too. It wasn't just my dad's advice. This is standard advice given by our, our professors. Uh, I always ran into uh, trouble when I was uh, appearing to be confident and I was told to be confident and conveying my results in, uh, in a paper, in a presentation. And my confidence came off as defensiveness. For example, I was told that I was being too defensive and giving my uh, job market paper when I was giving practice uh, job talks. And I was doing exactly what I saw the people in my cohort doing. I, I wasn't doing anything different, but it was certainly perceived very differently. So uh, we didn't pick that particular uh, comment that was the headline of the article. Uh, we wouldn't have chosen this field. I think after having been in it for almost uh, 30 years now, I wouldn't say that it was a uh, it was a mistake. Certainly, the uh, person whose comment we pulled out of the AEA climate study felt that way, and there were many others who who felt that way. And at times, I have felt that way. Um, but uh, certainly, one of the things that I um, am hopeful about, as uh, as you saw at the end of the article, is that we've acknowledged that this climate exists, um, and uh, there were many people who denied before and still deny that it exists and that it hampers um, women uh, and Black women in particular. So I, I think it was really important that that comment and the data got out. It seems to me that the, it's worth zooming in on a couple of issues. They're interrelated but distinct. The first is the challenge of, uh, how do I put it, operating effectively stylistically with this group of people as uh, a woman of color, just being different from your typical white guy. But there's another issue at play, which is just caring about different things in economics than uh, Milton Friedman did. Right. Because these are two different things. But obviously, if you're Milton Friedman and you're mostly talking to other wealthy white people, neoliberalism is an awesome system, right? Like neoliberalism has created an enormous amount of value for a very small group of almost exclusively white men right. over the last 40 years. And one of the reasons it did that so successfully is no one else was at the table, <laughs> right? No one else was there saying, hey, y'all, right. this is not working out very well for a whole bunch of other people. It's working out super well for you, right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but not very well for the other 99% of us. So there's that issue, which is, to me, super interesting and speaks to why it's so important to have diversity in the field particularly in a field that is as consequential to the outcomes that most people have in their lives. But then there's this other whole nother equally difficult issue, which is just, you know, the problem, the challenge of being a woman in a man's workplace, right? And it did, not to mention being a woman of color in a white man's workplace, right? That just the style differences and the different expectations and the higher standards and all this other bullshit that y'all have Ooh. to deal with. <laughs> uh, I'm um, glad you recognize so, it. <laughs> and so what I'd love for you guys to do is 
to address both of those things, but separately, because they're different, but connected. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you've mentioned a number of different things. It's absolutely true, right? You know, because by design, I'm a different person than you, I'm going to care about different things. And one thing that has come to my attention kind of coming through this profession is that the things that we care about, specifically as Black women, but more broadly as underrepresented minorities, is not rewarded in the profession. Or in the economy, I might add. <laughs> Yes. And these two things are linked. The economy (laughs) is informed by people in the profession. Yes. So if the people who are getting getting the training to do economic analysis and are ascending to the top, don't value the questions that directly affect communities that don't look like them, then the communities that don't look like them are going to be negatively impacted by whatever they do. Right. And that's something that is crystal clear. It's even more of a reason why citing Black women specifically, but citing underrepresented minorities more broadly is really important because the perspectives that we bring to the table are representative of some of the concerns that our communities might have. It's really important for people who look like the world to study the world. This explains where the field has gone off the rails, why the country has become so unequal, why people of color uh, and women have been so left behind and why the field is so resistant to change, because the people in the field benefit from the orthodoxy in the field and um, current arrangement. And exactly. And their masters uh, insist that they continue to toe the line. Right. You know, and our, our friend Marshall Steinbaum uh, put it incredibly well, you know, reflecting, I think, um, what both of your experiences, which is if you want to get tenure in an economics department that is funded by a bunch of rich white guys and big corporations, there's a line to toe. (laughs) There's an orthodoxy that they want to hear, and it is very hard to come in conflict with that orthodoxy and advance. And so, you know, and you guys are at the bleeding edge of that conflict. So I completely agree. And, And this is in line with what Janet Yellen has said about the financial crisis. So where did it come from? It came from people being trained in the same way, asking the same question. So this is what you're getting to. If you come to the economy in a very certain way, through a very certain lens, and everybody has a trust fund or everybody has uh, college paid for it, nobody's uh, struggled to pay uh, bills or has ever paid bills, for example, then they are going to have a certain perspective on the economy that um, women and uh, women of color in particular, black women, will have. Uh, they'll have a very different perspective. And this is what Janet Yellow was saying about the causes, the origins of the financial crisis. And I can tell you from being a person who goes into government ever so often to help clean up financial crises, uh, both here and uh, abroad, I can tell you that the, the lack of you know, women and diversity in these conversations leads to the next crisis. You're cleaning up one crisis and you're uh, starting another if you're not including people who are integrally intertwined with the economy, who are making most of the economic decisions in the household. And the household uh, you know, consumption accounts for about 65% of GDP. Women are making most of those decisions. Certainly, the math suggests that they should be uh, consulted more and, and African-Americans and other uh, underrepresented minorities should be consulted more. So it's the questions people are asking in their lived experience that makes a big difference with respect to the questions that are posed with respect to research and with respect to policy. So what can we do? And maybe, Anna, you can speak to this. What can be done to impact both the culture of the economic field and what gets sort of measured what in this path towards tenure or what kind of research is valued? And how would that impact, hopefully for the better, our economic sort of social and cultural decisions as a society? Yeah, that's a really great question. I would say Black women, specifically Black women economists, have done a really good job of naming the problem, naming that the culture is the problem. And that, you know, through the climate survey, through the works of Dr. Rhonda V. Sharp and Dr. Nina Banks, as well as Dr. Nia Francis, we know that there's something wrong with the pipeline. But I think we have to get to the point where it's not just saying that, oh, there's something wrong with the pipeline, but then taking it to the next step and saying, okay, so how do we acknowledge the people that we've left behind? Because I think one thing that I've noticed is that while people are really enthusiastic about 
diversity at the moment, there's an entire, there's generations before me that bear the brunt of discrimination and racism and sexism and all of that. And that was clearly um, shown in the climate survey results. And obviously through the quote that uh, sort of is the title for the New York Times op-ed, there are people who have built a career, have gotten the training and still are disrespected by their peers. And those folks need to be acknowledged and cited and included in the conversation to begin with. We need to first acknowledge that there are people in the room that we have not been acknowledging. And then the second thing I would say is beginning to address sort of why the pipeline into economics isn't as robust as it could be. So it comes from obviously generations of racism and sexism and discrimination, but then also acknowledging that there are literal behaviors and biases that happen from the very early parts of the pipeline, as Ania Francis has pointed out, that impact whether or not students decide to progress through a specific educational trajectory. What I've noticed in my own personal life is that people don't want to, people cannot fathom Black women succeeding in any respect. And I think that that's problematic and we have to talk about that. And I think on a more practical standpoint, people who are not Black women need to understand what role they can play to allow Black women to flourish, even if the space does not allow for it. So that's where the idea of sponsorship and allyship comes into play. If you see a Black woman colleague, how do you interact with her? How do you make her feel like she's part of the space? And so through the Sadie Collective, we have sort of built that network of professionals and institutions that are helping young Black women, as well as Black women who are later on in the pipeline, understand that their work is and will always be valuable and amplifying their work in such a way that allows them to move progressively through their professional careers. One thing that we find is that Black women, as we say in the op-ed, they're the ones who report the most discrimination just in general. The, the moves they have to take, undertake to avoid discrimination uh, objectively more than any other group, racial, gender, otherwise, every, every other group. So that's the first thing. That's sort of the, the opening part of the conversation. But in particular, they report more than any other group problems with respect to promotion and pay. If you look across the academy, this is a very, very common perception, very common practice of not retaining uh, Black women and not promoting them and not paying them. And everyone can see it. I think that this information could be closely held in another world without social media, but this generation and uh, some generations uh, preceding this generation, they're all on Twitter. They're all on uh, Facebook. This information is easily passed along. They know when tenure decisions happen. And I think that it is becoming um, embarrassing that the same practices have been happening for for 40 years, for 40 or 50 years. Well, I mean, again, just to try to wrap the conversation up, what's most interesting to me about it is in the field of economics, there's an even bigger challenge than there are in other academic fields or in other domains, because economics in our society is the tool we use to write the rules that define who will have status, wealth, and power. And that's why it's such a consequential field. And that is why it is even harder, I think, for people who are not from the dominant caste, if I could use that term, to break into it. (laughs) Because if people who are not from the dominant caste break into it, they may very well rewrite the rules of who gets status, wealth, and power in ways that are not preferred by the people who currently have it. And so there's this really sort of interesting sort of recursive or fractal interrelationship between your struggles in the field and the field's struggles to account for people who are not like the people who have written the rules in the past. It really comes down to commitment and power, like you were saying. People who have the power to bring diversity into rooms that sort of dictate spaces are the people who really need to make the change. You know, I don't know any Black women who are editors of any economics journals besides Dr. Cook. And I mean, I I guess also um, Dr. Rhonda Sharp as well for the review of um, the Black political economy. But like if the academy committed to, okay, I want to mentor a Black woman each year, or even just an underrepresented minority, more broadly speaking, 
the profession would become diverse, but you have to commit to that. I think it's really easy to throw money at an organization like the Sadie Collective or to retweet a couple things and say, rah, 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 I'm excited about diversity. But it's another thing to commit. And that's what people don't want to do. And so we're hoping that this op-ed, as well as the, the results from the climate survey that Dr. Cook assisted on, will really push people to commit to understanding that without diversifying the profession, profession does not grow and does not reflect the world. Well said. But I have one question that we always ask all of our guests, which I'd love to hear from each of you, which is, so why do you do this work? So I will answer that question and I'll uh, respond to what Nick just said as well, because I think it's, it's provocative. I'm doing this work because I have always done this work. I desegregated something every single year I was growing up. It was the pool, it was the school, it was the hospital, it was the restaurants. And, you know, I grew up in the rural South. So this happened a lot later than it did in the rest of the country, or it is happening a lot later than Mm -hmm. it has in the rest of the country. And I think that this is something that I was prepared to do, that I was trained to do and trained in in, uh, nonviolent change. So I don't think that this is this is the place I've wound up. It's economics where I've wound up. Um, this is somewhat serendipitous, but the training that I uh, that I got and the kind of optimism, the kind of optimism I've always felt, I'm just bringing to this job, and that's why I continue to do this work. For me, I do this work because I have to. My existence in this profession depends on doing this work, and I do this work because I want to. I think that what is more important than prestige or accolades or whatever is legacy. In order for this profession to move forward in a way that is conducive to our world and to society in general, we have to acknowledge that the voices that have been suppressed for literally a hundred years, starting with Sadie Alexander, and even before that, absolutely have to be unearthed in this next iteration of talking about social justice and talking about different issues that affect marginalized communities. So for me, it's it's a, a labor of love and I'm honored and humbled to be doing it. Well, hey, we really enjoyed this conversation and so appreciate you both taking the time. I think this discussion has been incredibly valuable. I'm happy that our audience gets to hear it. And thanks for being with us. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for doing thanks this. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. It's all mine. All ours. Yeah. Okay. Talk soon then. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Have a great day. Bye-bye. All right, bye. Bye. Steph, you know, as we did this episode together, is it kind of surprising to you? I mean, did you learn stuff by doing this episode? I think I had my my views enriched. Yeah. I mean, is a good way to You weren't surprised. It? Was I surprised that we've no. been excluded? No, 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 no. But but it is, but the more you think about it, more layers to it you can see. Yeah, right? for sure. And the ways in which these things interact and you know, like for my own part being a guy, what I've been highly attuned to isn't the gender way in which economics expresses itself, but in the class way that economics yeah. expresses itself, right? I tend to think of it as um, family units and some winning and most others losing, mm-hmm. but sadly, less natural for me to think about it from a gender perspective or a race perspective, right? right? Although all of those things intersect. And of course, it shouldn't surprise us, certainly not me or this podcast, because we are devoted to the idea that economics really isn't mostly a science, although there are scientific aspects of it. It is mostly how human beings instantiate their moral and social preferences about status, privileges, and power. It is mostly a story we tell ourselves to rationalize who gets what and why. And it's a narrative that certainly in our age, in our country, has been formed by and for rich guys, rich white guys, for other rich white guys. And that's it. And so a lot of other people are excluded, both from the narratives and from the profession and from the fruits of how the system distributes the goodies. One of the things that we didn't reflect on in the conversations we had with our guests was that, you know, I didn't feel it was fair to interject that, you know, my collaborator, Eric Beinhocker, and I 
really do think we have a new model. Right. <laughs> right? That we and you you've seen that around the office and stuff like that. That in fact we completely agree with them that we have to throw away Homo economicus and replace it with what we call Homo sapiens, which is what we actually are. Yeah. Which is other regarding, reciprocal, intuitively moral, and, you know, also sometimes selfish, a much mm-hmm. fuller picture of what a human is, whether you're a man or a woman, that reflects the, in the best way that we can what people are really like. Now, yeah. it, it's, a, it's a separate question, one I honestly haven't considered should we have two models, a male and a female model? I, no, I don't but, think I, would that, have, that, but I don't think that's appropriate at all. Yeah, but I but, do think, given what has been yeah. and how inadequate yeah. homo economicus and neoclassical and neoliberalism has been yeah. and how exclusionary it's right. been to race and gender yeah. questions, right. I think it would serve you and your cohorts much better to be really intentional yeah. about explicitly including racial considerations yeah and, and considerations and of gender. gender yeah yeah no it's a good it's a it's a good the absence of those being doesn't explicit. make it a better model yeah necessarily right it may make it more a more complete explanation than what we have yeah. today in neoliberalism but it maybe would still be inadequate if it yeah. didn't be more intentional about asserting the inclusion of those of those considerations aspects, right? right yeah yeah, yeah. Right. No, it's it's a really good point. And I mean, you know, we feel pretty strongly about the completeness of the social science research that we're depending on to assert this new model of human behavior. Yeah. But certainly from a narrative, rhetorical and sales point of view, being more um, explicit and intentional yeah. about including more of humanity in yeah. how we think about people need to see themselves in the story yeah, that's yeah, being yeah. told. Yeah. And, and be, that's by being Homo economicus's great failure. Yeah. Right. Only exactly. white rich men yeah. see themselves in, in that, that in that in right. that economy. Yeah. In that culture. Yeah. Right. It turns out that most people aren't rapacious. So if you are rapacious in a world where most people are not rapacious, you can take advantage of that very, very easily. Yeah. Yeah, we need to push back on that. So, in, in addition in a, to having yeah. sort of a better narrative forthcoming, a better story, a better explanation, mm-hmm. um, more complete view forthcoming, I'm also just feeling a little, in general, optimistic. I don't know if it was our guests or the fact that I learned I'm having a girl yesterday. Oh my god! Which is very exciting. Big news <laughs> on the podcast. You know, but I feel like it's possible to create a world in which her future contributions will be more recognized. Yeah, for sure. Well, That feels possible to yeah, me. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's indisputably true. I mean, you know, the arc of history is bending towards justice, and your circumstances are better than your mom's. And A hundred percent. Yeah, and her circumstances were better than her mom's, and your kid will yeah. have better circumstances than you. Yeah. It would take us a long time to get to the perfect promised land. But, for sure. But, and I'll do my bit to contribute yeah, to that. Yeah. But anyway, no, that's cool. Yay, a girl. In our next episode, we get to talk to an extraordinary economist, Gabriel Zuckman, about his fantastic new book, The Triumph of Injustice, How the Rich Dodge Taxes and How to Make Them Pay. <laughs> Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. The magic happens in Seattle in partnership with the Young Turks Network. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunkworks and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.